And this morning we come to a, an excellent section of scriptures. And I'll admit that part of my purpose in beginning with Genesis was so that we could eventually get to this passage uh, because the rest of scripture is framed around this interaction that Abram has with God. We are looking here at a covenant, the beginning of a covenant here, that God is making with Abram. It's a covenant where he is going to promise him land. He is going to promise him descendants. And he is going to promise him blessing. We're moving from the preparation of Abram. Now that he has been prepared, we are moving into God's making of a covenant with him. We move from his interactions with Melchizedek, the prefigurement of the resurrected Christ, where we see him as a type of the solution that God is going to have in his own son, Jesus Christ, a priest and a king. We now move to a covenant of promise with Abram, what will eventually result in the priesthood and the kingdom being united in Christ. And interestingly enough, we are going to see here not just a prefigurement of the second person of the Trinity, but we actually meet him in scripture. Abram doesn't know this. I believe Abram does not know this at this time. But the one who signs the covenant together with him is the one who will eventually ratify the covenant in his own blood. So we have this covenant of promise. Now we are going to begin with the main point, so that as we go through the sermon, you're not left wondering where are we headed. Um, and if you did grab one of the outlines to follow along, I know many of you take it for notes, but most of you take it so that you know where I am and how long until I finish. Uh, we are going to spend most of our time in point 1A. That is going to be most of our time. We'll move on from there, but uh, don't be surprised and think we're going to take forever. The second half is going to move pretty quickly because... I want to show you who it is who is signing this covenant with Abram. So our main point, God is about to draw Abram into a covenant relationship with himself. In this covenant, God will promise Abram restoration of all the things through the promise of land, seed, and blessing. Abram's relationship to God is based on God's grace towards Abram. That cannot be stressed enough. Abram didn't merit God's relationship with him. Abram received this gift. Abram's righteous standing before God, which made this covenant possible, was not from Abram's good work, but from his simple faith in God's promise. And it was faith plus nothing. Faith does not merit anything. Faith is how we receive the free gift of God. And we begin with God promising to increase Abram. Now, chapter 15 of Genesis should not be separated from chapter 14. We remember that Abram chased these four kings from the east out of the promised land. He blessed everyone in the process as God had commanded him to do. And then when Sodom offered him worldly riches, he says, no, because I have sworn to God Almighty that I will take nothing from you so that you cannot say you have made me rich, so that God and God alone will get the glory for having made Abram rich. 
And so God is now stepping in. And God is reconfirming this promise that he made to him in Genesis 12. And at that point, it was a promise that began a new stewardship, a new way that God was dealing with mankind. And here he is going to confirm that promise, not just as his spoken word, but as a covenant, bringing Abram into relationship with him by sealing and signing this promise with, as we'll see next week, what's called a maledictory oath. In other words, there are consequences on God if he fails. Last week, you remember as we met Melchizedek, we saw that Melchizedek was a priest and a king. Well, here we see that Abram is a prophet. We have all three of Jesus' offices present here. They're early forms. Jesus is going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is going to reign as king. And when he comes in his first advent, he comes as a prophet. And that prophet eventually acts as our priest to offer the final sacrifice. And he stands now as our high priest. Jesus will have occupied all three of these positions that we see spread out in humanity as God works to restore this office to his son. He says, after these things, and that those things are the war, Abram's victory, which was based on God's victory, and the blessing. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Now, this is the first time that we see this phrasing of a prophecy. The word of the Lord came to Abram. The word here is not the context. Con- of the speech, but it is the agent, the subject. The thing that is coming to him is the word, and it comes to him audibly, yes, but notice this in a vision. Now, I don't know how many of you have conversations from day to day. I assume it's every single one of you. How often do you see these conversations? You don't. You don't see the words that are spoken. That's kind of the nature of dialogue. You can see the person who's speaking, but words themselves are not visible. This word of the Lord that came to Abram, he saw. He sees in a vision. Genesis 20, verse 7, confirms to us that Abram is indeed a prophet because this is a form of introducing a prophet. We'll see it again in Ezekiel. We see it in Exodus says, now therefore restore the man's wife, that's Sarah, for he, Abram, is a prophet. And he will pray for you, being Abimelech, who at that time had Sarah in his harem, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So God comes to speak with his prophet. And he comes as the word of the Lord. Now, we can look at this simply from a New Testament context. We look at the book of John and we see that the word was with God and was God. and The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But we don't want to hop immediately into the New Testament. When we're dealing with the Old Testament, we need to deal with it as they would have read it and understood it at that time. And we can see that before the New Testament ever came into existence, 
The Jews who were studying their own scriptures had already begun to come to this concept of there being multiple persons to the Godhood. Now they avidly reject that today because now they see the consequences of that, that Jesus who claimed to be the Christ is God. If they accept that there is multiple persons to this Godhood, then this admits their greatest defense against receiving Jesus as Messiah. But we see in their own writings from the silent period of prophets in the 400 years before Christ, as well as even in the records up to about 300 years after Christ, that they had seen a distinction between the word of God, which they called the Memra, and God himself. And interesting enough, about the time that Christ came, that distinction was made, and they were starting to see a distinction between the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and God himself. They had the concepts ready and laid when the Trinity was introduced in the New Testament, but they rejected it. So we'll look at a few quotes from their own commentaries and translations called Targums and uh, Midrash. First, we'll see that they understood that the word of God was itself distinct from God and also divine. Now we'll read first from a Targum. A Targum is a translation which paraphrases the Old Testament, kind of like the Message Bible today, where it's not a word-for-word translation, but this is the sense. This is how we understand this. Genesis 3.8, remember when God comes to meet Adam and Eve in the garden after they had sinned. It says, then they heard the voice of the Memra of the Lord God. Memra is the word for word in the Aramaic. They heard the voice of the Memra of the Lord walking in the garden towards the decline of the day. And so Adam and his wife hid themselves before the Lord God within the tree of the garden. In Genesis 28, 21, the Memra of the Lord will be my God. Not only that, but he's the agent of creation. Most often when we see the word of God as the person Jesus Christ in the New Testament, we see him referred to as the agent of salvation and the agent of creation. In Colossians and in Hebrews, it stresses this creator aspect in John as well. But in Genesis 1, verse 1 and verse 3, from the beginning with wisdom, the memra of the Lord created and perfected the heavens and the earth. And the memra of the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light according to the decree of the memra. In Genesis 14, 22, in the account with Sodom, behold, I have lifted up my hand in an oath before the Lord, the most high God, who by his memra created the heavens and the earth. In other words, they understood that when Abram swore to God most high that he would take nothing from Sodom, that he recognized that this most high God had used a different agent to create, that he had used his word and that his word was its own person. 
Remember Psalm 33, 6. The word of the Lord, for by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. This does not simply mean that God the Father spoke and everything came into existence, but the person who we now know is Jesus the Messiah was the agent that God used to create all things. He is the heir of all things as well. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the world. Jesus Christ is the word of God and he is revealed in God's word. He is the agent of salvation and they understood this, that God would save by his word and that his word was a distinct person. And my memra will go among you, and my memra will be for you a redeeming God. And you shall be, for my name, a people of holy ones. Isaiah 12.2 Behold, in the memra of the God of my salvation I trust, and will not be shaken, for the awesome one, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He has spoken by his memra. And he has become for me a savior. The memra was also how God became visible. Remember in John 1, 14, we are moving into the New Testament a bit here. It says, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Now this word for dwell in the Greek is skinao, which is where we get the word shekinah. In the Hebrew, it's mishkan, which mi is the among, and shkan is the presence. So in the middle of the presence. This is the Shekinah presence of God. God made visible in the camp of Israel. God made visible in the Holy of Holies, where he actually came to dwell among his people. As Mark is going to teach you all in a few weeks in the Sunday school, during the time of Ezra, the Shekinah glory, the visible presence of God in the Holy of Holies, left the temple about 400 years, a little more, before Christ came. When Christ came back, the glory was returning to offer the kingdom. Jesus is the visible form of God. Jesus is the Shekinah glory that was dwelling in the temple with Israel. He came back to offer himself as their Messiah, and they rejected him. But as Ezekiel 43 will assure us that in his kingdom, he will return to his temple. But it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we'll look at a few quotations from the Midrash, which is not a translation, it is a commentary. It is a Jewish commentary on the Bible, and it began to be written down in about AD 300. So this is now after the time of Christ, but still these were their traditional interpretations of these words. Uh, it is yeah, a later collection of writing, often providing commentary or in a sense rewriting the Old Testament. 
In Numbers 13.2 in Midrash Rabbah, we read, When did the Shekinah rest on the earth? On the day when the tabernacle was erected. As it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Targum Neafidi in Exodus 3, and it was manifest, means made present or made visible, the Lord that Moses had, re- had turned aside to see, and the memra of the Lord called to him from the midst of the thorn bush. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look on the glory of the Shekinah of the Lord, the glory of the presence of the Lord. In the Jerusalem Talmud, we read that uh, the Jerusalem Talmud states that the patriarchs knew only the God of heaven, but God did not reveal to them the Lord's mimra or memra. This Aramaic word mimra, the rabbis often identified with the Messiah. It corresponds to the Greek word logos. Targum Jonathan says that my name, or the Lord I did not, the Lord I did not, however, reveal to them through my Holy Spirit. In the Isaiah Targums, chapter 9, verse 6, the prophet said to the house of David, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will accept the law upon himself to keep it, and his name will be called before the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, existing forever, the Messiah, in whose days peace will increase upon us. Great pride will belong to those who perform the law, and for those who keep peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it, and to build it with judgment and the virtue from the time forth and forever. By the memory of the Lord of hosts, this will be done. They recognize this as the Messiah. In Matthew 16, 27, in our actual Bible, not a rewritten uh, Jewish interpretation, but this is from the NASB 95, it says, for the Son of Man, which is a messianic title, is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here among his twelve disciples who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, some of those 12 disciples. And he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. The veil of his flesh, which he took on in his first advent in order to conceal the visible presence of God, though he is the presence of God here on earth, that veil was taken away for a moment, and the disciples saw the glory of God coming in its kingdom. They saw what it would be like when the Son of Man is once again elevated to the glory that he had before. Now here's where we get to the point. This memra, distinct person from God the Father, was the covenant signer. He is the one God used to sign covenants with mankind. And as we understand man's role here on earth, 
as the mediator between God and creation, we understand why it is that he had his own son who he planned to make into a man, be this signer of the covenant, because it is to this person of the Godhead, Jesus the Son, that he would give the title deed to this earth. And it was through this man that God would rule over his creation, that he would vindicate creation. In Targum Pseudo-Jonathan in Genesis 9.15, the Jews wrote, I will remember my covenant which is between my memra and you. This is God speaking of two other people, my memra and you. In other words, we might translate this and say, my son and you. And every living thing of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Which covenant is this? This is not the Abrahamic covenant. This is the Noahic covenant. God the Son signed the Noahic covenant, which preserves creation until God has fulfilled his purposes in it. Targum Angelos in Genesis 17.10, they wrote, This is my covenant which you shall preserve between my memory and you and your descendants after you. Circumcise every male among you. This is one clause from the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 15.17, which we'll look at next week, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces. And while they were passing between the pieces, Abram was fast asleep. God signed this covenant between himself and his son on behalf of Abram. Abram received the beneficiary blessings of this covenant. But the task of completing this covenant was given to the Son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. In Luke twenty-two twenty, we see Jesus as the signer of the new covenant. And now as we realize that he was the signer of the old covenants as well, we see that this is nothing new. This is how God operates in his covenants. Jesus says, or Luke writes, in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The covenant signer for all of history is here putting his stamp on the last covenant, the new covenant through which God fulfills the blessing clause of the promise and through which the seed is fulfilled and through which the land promise will be fulfilled. Finally, the memra is the agent of revelation. We have God coming down, God, the second person, the word of the Lord, to transmit a promise to Abram, the prophet. Targum Nefidi in Exodus 6.2 says, The Lord spoke with Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I was revealed in my memra to Abram, to Isaac and to Jacob, as the God of the heavens, but my mighty name, the Lord, I did not make known to him. In Genesis 16.3, Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, 
she gave thanks before the Lord whose Memra had spoken to her. And she spoke thus, You are the living and the enduring one who sees but is not seen. For she said, Behold, here indeed the glory of the Shekinah of the Lord was revealed, vision after vision. Who's speaking here? This is Hagar in the wilderness. Genesis 15.1, our passage this morning. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. God made visible in the second person of the Trinity, the word of God, and he came to Abram. And what does he say? Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. In John 1.18, no one has seen God. How can Jesus say this? They are looking right at him. Later, he'll say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because Jesus is the physical, visible representation of the Godhead. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him or made him known, described him, even made him visible. We have two different agents here or subjects with God, God the Father and God who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus Christ, the visible representation of the Godhead. He came in a vision to Abram in order to give him protection, assurance of the promise that God had given him when he first left his land. He says, do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Now, it's interesting here that the first thing he says is do not fear. This is usually what we see when an angel visits a person. This visible angel would terrify the people, its glory, its presence. Abram is seeing something visually. Ezekiel is terrified in the presence of the Lord. John in Revelation 1 is terrified and falls down on his face as if dead. When the second person of the Trinity is made visible to Abram, he has to assure Abram, telling him, do not fear. Now there's more than just the visible presence of God's glory for Abram to fear here. But this is what man has feared and rightly so because man cannot stand in the presence of God's perfect righteousness and live. The unrighteousness, the sin in him, just crumbles. It is too great to stand in God's presence. But for Abram, it's made possible, and we'll see why when we get to Genesis 15, 6. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why did Adam and Eve hide when they heard God's physical manifestation walking towards them in the garden? Why did they run? The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. They didn't even see the presence of God, but already they had fear. And why was it? Because they were naked. They were uncovered. 
The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. He covered them. God says to Abram, I am a shield to you. I am your protection. I am your covering. Now he saw this demonstrated in the physical world. God was a shield to Abram when he and his 318 men went after these four conglomerate armies. Four armies, not just one. And they had victory. And Melchizedek recognizes that this is because the almighty God is fighting for Abram. Abram recognizes this. And here it is confirmed that God is his shield. This has application for us as well. We might not have an opportunity to go up against four armies. God may not have it in his will for us to go up against four armies with just 318 men. In fact, I can almost guarantee you he won't. But we have enemies that are not seen. We have enemies in this spiritual, or that uh, exists in the spiritual realm, and these are awful enemies. And it is not up to us to go out and fight them. In fact, Ephesians is divided wonderfully by three words, sit, walk, and stand. Watchman Nee even wrote a commentary called Sit, Walk, Stand for Ephesians because he recognized this. We are seated with God in the heavenlies. Our position is made righteous in his son. And so in our activity, we walk with him. And when we encounter the opposition of the evil one, we don't walk headfirst into battle and try to our best to wield God's armor. No, that's foolish. We stand. We stand firm in the truth that he has delivered. We stand in him, and he does the fighting. We stand behind his armor. We don't grab it and run recklessly into battle. God does the fighting. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist not go and attack, resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the word of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, this is the same thing just in a New Testament context, in a dispensation of grace. This is the same thing that Abram is doing. He's standing in God's righteousness. He is standing having been made positionally secure by God trusting in God's word as it has been revealed to him. He has confidence in God, and God goes before him. He is his shield. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is also the first I am statement of the second person of the Trinity. He makes many I am statements most of them in the New Testament. But the first thing he tells Abram is, I am a shield to you. 
And the second thing he tells him is that he is his great reward. This is not reflected well in our translation. There's actually no verb attached to this and no and attached to this. He says, I am a shield to you, represented here in the red, the I am, Anoki, and then Megan, a shield, and Lak to you in the yellow. I am to you a shield. I stand as your protection. And then it moves immediately into your reward. This is what's called apposition. These two things are equal statements. This is not a second clause. These are two equal things. I am your shield and that, or your reward, and that reward is very great. In other words, we could say, I am a shield to you. I am your very great reward. And this is perfect in the context because what is God about to confirm through the second person to Abram but the promise of a descendant, promise of a seed? I don't think Abram fully understood much of this, but he believed it. And in fact, that's what we're called to do. We're not called to fully understand how God makes salvation work. We're told to believe that what he has revealed to us does work. Now, don't, don't hear me saying we can't understand. Salvation is understandable. It's a process that is revealed to us. But in order to be saved, all we need to know is who we're trusting in and what he did. We believe in the God-man, Jesus Christ. We don't, know how, we don't need to know how it works that he's both God and man. But we believe that he is. And we need to know that he died for our sins and that he rose again. We don't need to know how God transferred our sins to him. We trust that he did. We don't need to know how God rose him from the dead. We believe that he did. Now we can understand these things. God has revealed it in his word. But this process of understanding how it all works comes after we've been saved. This is what it means to meditate in his word, to come to know him better. We know him better by seeing what he's done. I mean, this is the very same thing that God uses to convict the whole world in Romans 1.20. He says, my invisible attributes are visible in what I've done. We get to know God by understanding better what he's done, by coming to understand how exactly it is that he worked this most magnificent miracle to save unrighteous mankind. Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, and I am your very great reward. Abram probably does not understand at this point that the very one speaking to him would eventually enter into his very line of descendants. The second person of the Trinity would take on human flesh, and he would take on human flesh that is presently in Abram's body. Naturally, Abram has some questions for God. Now, I think a few commentators go off the rails here and say, Abram didn't believe God. No, Abram believed God. He didn't understand how God was going to make it work. That's the same thing we deal with in our salvation. Yes, we trust it, we understand it, but we're coming to understand how by meditating on his word, by asking scripture questions. 
And we have the answers recorded for us there. Abram just doesn't have the answer recorded for him yet. He's asking God, how are you going to do this? Because I look at my present circumstances and I don't see it yet. I don't see it working. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now his question is, what are you going to give me? God promised him descendants. He says, I have no descendants right now. What are you going to give me? He promised him land. Oh, he's in that land, but who's the land going to go to? Remember in Genesis 12, 7, God said, I'm giving this land to your descendants. It's not until later that God reveals that he's giving it to Abram as well. And Hebrews reminds us that Abram never experienced the fulfillment of this promise in his lifetime. But in the resurrection, he will. He will fully experience this land promise. So we see why here Abram's asking, what are you going to give me? Because even if you give me land, I have no descendants to inherit it. This is why God's going to confirm the seed promise first. Now notice though, Abram understands and believes God's promise of a descendant because his issue is, I'm childless. He's not saying, I'm going to choose this guy, Eliezer of Damascus. Please sanction that. He's saying, God, if I die right now, all of my stuff goes to this guy who's legally my heir. And that's not what you promised. So I know you're working. I don't see it. Well, God's actually silent here. God doesn't speak until Abram speaks again. And the way the syntax kind of works out, we almost get the sense that Abram waited a little while before he spoke again. He spoke and there's silence and there's silence. And finally he says, since you've given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. He's not saying I want all of your gifts to go to this one. This is, I think, similar to Moses's conversation with God in Numbers 16, where God says, I'm going to wipe them all out and I'm going to start over again with you. And Moses says, no, God, because of your glory. What is Egypt going to say when they see that you brought all these people out into the wilderness to save them and then you slaughtered them all? This isn't the promise that you gave them. They've seen your mighty works. They saw you rescue them out of their hands. And you did not rescue them to destroy them out here. God rescued them because of this promise that he gave to Abram. We'll see it better next week when we see some more of the details of this covenant. But this is the same thing. Abram's issue, I think, is God's glory. Abram has not seen the fulfillment of God's promise as God promised it. And Abram is trusting that God's promise is going to be fulfilled literally. He's not going to spiritually hand it over to another heir. God said, your descendants. Descendants in the Hebrew is the same word seed. There is no way of getting a spiritual interpretation out of that. God said, the very seed that's in you, Abram, I'm going to multiply those on the earth.
God speaks. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this is the second time now, the word of the Lord comes to Abram and he speaks. He says, this man will not be your heir. He's not saying, no, Abram, you're wrong. I'm not going to give all of your stuff to him. In the uh, Code of Hammurabi, which was kind of law of the land around this time, there is a stipulation that in case a lord or a lady die without children, whoever is the chief of their servants, it becomes their duty to mourn for these lords and then to receive an inheritance from them. So if Abram at this time were to die, law of the land says everything's going to his chief servant. This is what Abram is worried about because that's not the descendant. That's not one who's in his body. In Hebrews, we saw that Levi was able to pay tithes to Melchizedek because he was in the body of Abram when Abram did it. For mankind, we share in Adam's sin because we were in his body when he sinned. Heredity is important in scripture. Abram understands that. Abram understands that there is a difference between an adopted heir and an heir that comes from his own body. So God is essentially here saying, do not worry, Abram, because the man right now who's slotted to receive your inheritance is not going to get it because your seed is going to come. The one but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Now there's a stipulation in the Code of Hammurabi that at any time, if a natural descendant is born, it automatically replaces that legal heir, the servant. This is to protect, of course, people in their old age or older age who may have gone through this legal process of making their servant an heir and then perhaps dies in childbirth. Well, who does it go to then? The law stipulates that naturally, as soon as a descendant is born, it belongs to that natural descendant. God is saying, you will have your heir. He will come from your own body. It will not go to Eliezer of Damascus. The same phraseology is repeated in the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is an expansion or a, an embellishment on the Abrahamic covenant. You see, it doesn't change anything, but it adds more detail because God is ready to start working more on this covenant with mankind. In fact, we can even divide up our Old Testament in how is God working or what covenant aspect is he focusing on. In the first five books of scripture, God really focuses actually on the land covenant. How is the land being awarded to Israel? Actually, we get that all the way up through about Judges, Ruth. From that point forward, now that they are in the land, God uses the rest of the histories of Israel to start developing the seed promise. The last time it had really been narrowed down would be with Judah. But then God says, no, it's through David now. David, a descendant of Judah. 
And it is David's household that he elevates to be the royal household. So he amplifies this. The prophets, especially during the exile, once Israel is now in the process of losing their land temporarily because of covenant disobedience under the Mosaic law, that's when God is, begins to promise them, embellishing, explaining to them in greater detail the new covenant, the better covenant that's going to come in and replace the Mosaic covenant, which is a temporary covenant, a conditional covenant, one that stands in the place between them and blessing so that they don't receive that eternal blessing before they have been regenerated. This is an important issue in the blessing clause of the Abrahamic covenant. This is an unconditional covenant that God is giving to them. And when you give sinners an unconditional covenant, one that promises blessing no matter what, what happens then if these sinners are never made perfect? God has a plan in this covenant, through the new covenant, to make these sinners perfect through the blood of Christ. By adopting them not just as legal heirs, but as heirs who are born again, born through the Spirit, born through Christ. But in the amplification here of the Davidic covenant, where God narrows in on the line and promises that this isn't just a line of a redeemer, but this is a line of a king. He says, when your days are complete, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. Not an adopted heir, one who is in your bloodline. I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, immediately this is fulfilled through Solomon. But eventually this is fulfilled completely through the Messiah. Not only does God give Abram his words to explain to him this covenant, but he gives him a visual experience as well. He takes him outside. So apparently Abram was in his dwelling place while God came to him. He takes him outside and he says, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you are able to count them, and he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now, some, I think, have terribly interpreted this and said, well, these heavenly objects, these stars refer to a spiritual seed. Because in chapter 13, God had said, the dust of the earth, that will be like your descendants. And so some have interpreted, well, God or Abram is going to have two descendants, one spiritual and one physical. The physical will be like the dust of the earth and the spiritual will be like the stars in the heavens. I think this is an impossible interpretation because what is the context? This cannot speak of a spiritual descendancy because it says this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. The context is physical descendants. Simply, this is explaining the innumerability of these descendants that are promised to Abram. And he promises it to him using language of his fixed created order. 
Remember, this second person of the Trinity was the one who signed the Noahic covenant with him, promising the perseverance of creation in its order until God fulfilled all these promises. And now God is attaching this promise to that created order. In Jeremiah 31, 35, and this comes right after the expansion of the new covenant. says, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. God has promised that this fixed order will stay in the sky. And so God attaches this promise to the stars so that even today, Israel can look up into the sky and see this fixed order and depend on God's promise. God is still faithful to hold those stars in the sky. He is still faithful to his promise to make Israel a nation. And we do the same thing because our assurance is also tied to Israel's assurance. If God is unfaithful to them and his promises toward them, why would we have any confidence in his promises towards us? It is very important that God has not abandoned Israel. If he has abandoned them and replaced them with us as the church, and the church itself is a Jewish organization, the first 15 years, it was almost completely Jewish. But if God has replaced this people who is not a nation, with this nation of Israel, then he has broken his promise to them and we should not trust him for anything. God is faithful to Israel. Thus the Lord says, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The natural answer to this is it can't be measured. God made it. God can count it. We cannot. But now this relation of Israel, why once to the dust and once to the stars here? I think it has to do with God filling his creation. This is the created order that we messed up with our sin. We messed up with our rebellion, where we decided rather than ruling on behalf of God and enacting his will in his created domains, we decided, no, we're going to divorce our will from him and attach it to the creation instead, one of his created angels. Well, he first formed this domain in the first three days, time, space, and matter on day one, the sky and the water on day two, on day three, he separated the water from the dry land, but then he began to fill it. And what's the first thing he fills it with? Sun and the moon for us, stars. Stars in the night sky. And what's the very last thing that he created as well? We were his last creation in the created week. In the creative week. Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground. God is able to create from dust. God tells Adam, from dust you are made and from dust you will return. Well, there's going to be a time where Israel will look like dust on the ground. 
He calls it a valley of dry bones. No life, nothing whatsoever. God is going to give it life. Even when it looks like it has died, God is able to bring back from the dust Israel. In fact, this is a guarantee that they have. He guarantees this to Daniel in chapter 12. Daniel, throughout most of the book, kind of goes along with this understanding or thought that the kingdom is going to begin as, as soon as they return from captivity. God gives him the rather disappointing answer, I think, for him. No, but there's going to be 490 years. And at one point, at the 483rd year, that timeline is going to be cut. And you don't even know when those last seven years are going to happen. He says, this is my program for bringing in the kingdom. And although this is disappointing for Daniel, God says, you are going to die. You won't enter physically into this kingdom in this lifetime. But at the end of the age, I will raise you up into the land. And all of Israel as well. You see, Israel, most of the people who have existed throughout history, save for some 12 million perhaps today, are at this moment dust. God is going to raise them back into their kingdom. It belongs to them. Abram, right now, is dust. But God is going to raise him into his kingdom. God is faithful to all of his promises. Now, as I said, the prophets really hit the new covenant hard. They amplify. That's why it's really hard for us to identify one place in the prophets where the new covenant is really the main topic because they're all about the new covenant. They're all pointing forward towards that redemption that God promises, the regeneration that is necessary for Israel to dwell in their land because you cannot have a sinful people with an unconditional promise living freely. They need to be made perfect first. God is going to do that through the new covenant. The new covenant is how he makes people perfect. It sounds impossible, but here's what he says in Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. This is using the same words from the creation week. Just as God created out of dust, man, here he is creating out of nothing the nation of Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba as your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. Now, this is an interesting promise because we're told twice in Scripture about how God is going to regather Israel into its kingdom. Once we're told that he is going to regather them from the four corners of the earth. And another time, we're told that he is going to regather them from the extent of the heavens. 
I think this goes back to his promise that Israel will be like the stars and Israel will be like the dust of the earth. No matter where they are, God will bring them back and fulfill his promise. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your King. And so we understand how God can say, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you and your very great reward. It is through this that God is going to give them the Abrahamic covenant. It is on this basis, on this promise, that God is going to restore what was created and lost. See, God cursed the land because of Abram or because of Adam because of Adam's sin. Adam's job was to rule in this created domain on behalf of God. God is going to restore life. In fact, this is one of the very first things that Adam and Eve are promised. They're promised a seed who would come to crush the serpent's head, to vindicate them. The problem, though, is that they're returning to dust. Adam grabs a hold of this promise and names his wife Eve because she is the mother of all living. And from that point forward, they trace this seed line waiting for the Redeemer, waiting for the Savior. But this is, I think, the real promise here. It's all a real promise, but the promise of restored blessing. This is the relationship that was broken when man became sinners when they became separated from God. God is restoring that relationship, that relationship that when they are attached to God, the source of life, they have life. God, the creator who made the land and all that's in it, they are able to use it well. God, the creator of life itself, when they are attached to him, they have true life. Well, I'm going to cut it off there, and we will start with Genesis 15:6 next time. It's a good place to start, because other than John 3:16, it's probably historically the most quoted scripture in all of God's word. This is the scripture that kick-started the Reformation, because the reformers recognized that God did not save by buying indulgences but he saved on the basis of faith alone. And that with faith alone, God would reckon to that person's account righteousness. Not just forgiveness, not just, not just forgiving the debt, but adding to him infinite riches. And so we'll start with that next week. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your promises to Abram that we still depend on those promises today and that we've seen much of it already begin to be fulfilled. We do long for the day when Christ returns to finally complete this Abrahamic covenant. We thank you for the new covenant, which has already been ratified and which we live in today. We thank you that you did not wait until the very end in order to 
allow us to experience these blessings of the new covenant. We do praise you in the name of your son whose blood was shed in order to save us. We praise you in his name. Amen.